Yes, let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, um, when we open your word, I appreciate what Erica said, was we so often come as if, uh, as Rick said well too, that Like you're one of the guys um, that you are um, the most high God in man. Um, that, that you, I was thinking about it coming over, just wondering sometimes if you ever get tired of us coming to you with all our needs. Yeah. We get tired of sometimes people who are real needy and clingy and, and uh, um, can be kind of wearing on us. Yeah, but you were not like that. You know, yeah. It's just reminded that, that you were not like that. And um, that, in fact, we are very limited people. The older I get, the more I realize how limited I really am. And, and limited in energy, limited in time, limited in health, limited in, in intellect, limited in, 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 in physical strength, in, in mental strength, in, in just about in every way we are very limited people. And, um, <clears throat> and so we thank you for passages like the one in John 10 that we studied recently and the one we're looking at in John 11, which remind us that there's no limit with you, that you are um, able, that what, what to man looks impossible is possible with you, that you make a way where there seems to be no way. We thank you that you are that kind of God. And we take comfort and encouragement in that this morning even as we uh, continue in chapter 11 and we see your enemies conspiring to uh, put you put your son to death and uh, but it was all part of the plan uh, and even the disciples your closest confidants didn't understand but it was part of the plan and uh, we thank you that you accomplished redemption for us perfect righteousness atonement and regeneration are all offered in the gospel to those who believe. I pray that we would be among those who are believing and who are growing. We do pray for Tumbled Slinkers. Uh, just pray for their church. I know that that I'm sure that it wasn't like Fort Myers, but I'm sure that there was damage and probably some maybe some down power lines on things. Just pray that that uh, you will continue to bless them and that ministry there as well. And, uh, and for other churches around the area and around the world, where we don't, we know we're not the only game in town. We we really understand understand that and understand that that uh, there are many churches. Not all of them are preaching the gospel, though, Lord. And so it grieves our hearts to see uh, places where there's a cross on the outside of the building, but there's but Christ is left like the Laodicean church, and maybe he's on the outside, not going to be let in whatever the case may be. And Father, for us as well, I pray that, that you would reignite many hearts today from your word, uh, both in our region, in our country, and around the world with your word. Um, that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. We are needy people, and we need your grace, and we humbly ask for it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 11, uh, 
two weeks old. I'm glad I wrote down a little note as to where we left off because I wouldn't have remembered, probably. All right, so remember John 11 is one of the longest chapters in, in this gospel. There's a lot of setup and teardown, you might say, from the pinnacle, which is the raising of Lazarus, right? The raising of Lazarus itself is rather unremarkable. And uh, Jesus, just uh, remember that three-point outline. He first lifts the stone, then he lifts his eyes, and then, no, sorry, raises. He raises the stone, raises his eyes, and raises Lazarus. It's an easy way to remember that. And that is what it means in the Greek, where it says that they, they took up the stone, or they, you know, some, some translations say they moved it or whatever, but it is literally the same word as it is with his, with his eyes. And he just prays to the Father. He doesn't even really, um, sounds like this mic is going out on us. Um, doesn't even really, uh, thanks, sir. He doesn't even really um, ask his Father. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, when we pray, we say, now, Father, like we're just praying for Dennis, right? And 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 Marcia and just and Rick, you're right, you pray for healing and all that. But Jesus doesn't do that. You know, he just says, I thank you, Father, that you hear me. And I don't say this for your benefit, because I know you always hear me, but I say it for the benefit of those around me. And uh and and we and then he prays and then he just simply says, Lazarus, come out. That's it. No rain dance, no choir singing, no passing the offering plate. No magical incantations for the next day and a half, right? You know, or even an hour long. You know, some of these, um, <clears throat> I read uh, not too long ago, Costi Hinn. You know, you heard of Benny Hinn, right? Uh, Costi Hinn is, is his son, and he, uh, he left all of that uh, word faith uh, heresy and uh, is, is, is now a really sound, solid Bible teacher. He's a really great guy. Uh, and if you ever get to go on YouTube, he's really interesting speaker here and everything. He's very good. Um, but um, he was talking about those those healing um, services, so-called healing services that his father has, you know, and and, and his, they're they're very typical of, of these people. And they'll go on for four hours, and it's all this music, you know, and all of this build up and build up and build up and finally then he comes out and he's got a white suit on you know three-piece suit and all this and, and it's all this uh, this um, you know uh, words that are designed to move the audience and this emotion you know they're whipped up into this frenzy and then they come up and he slings his coat around or he, you, you've seen that yeah. you know, it'll hit them on the forehead or <coughs> come up and you know, cast out the demon of Jesus name or whatever it is it's all this drama Right? How unremarkable Jesus is when he comes up and just simply says in a loud voice after looking up to heaven and praying, and he looks at the, the tomb, presumably maybe in the ground. Lazarus, come forth. That's it. As the man starts, is just kind of stumbling, trying to come out, you know, bound. Kind of half turns and says to the people around him, loose him and let him go. <laughs> what? I mean, you know, it's 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 just it, to me it stands as uh, you probably tell stands as such stark contrast with all the drama and the 
and the and the showmanship that we see today in so-called heroes. Uh, and, and they can't they can't do anything even close to this no, no, in reality. No. So yeah, so so um, chapter eleven. And remember that in the build the buildup is all there to help us set the stage. So that we're right there and we see and sympathize with the disciples and with Mary and Martha and the disappointment that everybody feels. Nobody expects him to do this. Now they had seen him raise the dead before. We saw that in that right now in Mark, right? Raising of Jairus' daughter. But she had just died, you know, probably within the hour. Maybe not even an hour dead before when he and, and then he makes that strange statement, you know, she's She's not dead, but sleeping. So maybe, you know, for a cynic who's looking at this, or somebody who hears about it third, third hand later, you know, um, maybe uh, they might say, well, you know, Lazarus is too dead, you know. <laughs> He's too dead. But the odor is unmistakable. And, um, um, and so the audiences that is there, remember this is very important because I'm already working on our notes for the next chapter and uh, <clears throat> um, was just reminded again of how how chapter 11 sets up chapter 12 and uh, and the and what we call the um, the triumphal entry what's commonly called the triumphal entry and triumphal entry is in all four gospels there's a little bit of we're going to deal with this later a little bit of a chronology issue because um, Matthew and Mark put uh, the anointing of uh, put that first, and then the anointing of Mary uh, of Jesus by Mary with the, the ointment later. And John switches that; he actually says that this happened the day before. Um, I don't think it's a contradiction; it's just the, the way they tell the story. And we'll often do that. We'll often go back. Oh, before I tell you this, and then go back and tell you this, right? Um, so. Anyway, but the point is, John is the only one who tells us about this greatest miracle, public miracle, that Jesus ever did. Right? And, uh, and I say public because the greatest miracle he did was what? Physical miracle, anyway. I think salvation is, is the greatest miracle God does anywhere, anytime. Resurrection of, of our hearts, right? And that's what he says in chapter 11. That's the whole heart of, of this chapter is I am the resurrection and the life. It's both of those things. And there, it's not a stu he's not stuttering. He's not saying the same thing twice. It's two different resurrections. Right? But his own his own resurrection was a private miracle that was only for his disciples and, and closest followers to see. Paul says at one point there were many as 500 witnesses that saw him at one time. That, that um, uh, likely was on the mountain, perhaps, when he ascended before he ascended. Um, <clears throat> anyway, but this this miracle of raising Lazarus is public, and there's a large the God the Father, you know, God in His planning makes sure that there's a very large, prominent, wealthy, well-connected, uh, highly respected audience there to see it right so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses plus 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 okay many 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 witnesses reputable witnesses it'd be one thing if they dragged that samaritan woman at the well 
with all of her shabby background, right? You know, in their eyes, right? You know, serial adulterer, you know, going from husband to husband, and you know, this loose woman in the village. She's a Samaritan in any way, a half breed, and they don't really worship God the way we do. And if the Pharisees had dragged her in as a witness, they'd have been with this crowd. This crowd has clout, right? And there's no excuse not to believe their witness. And there's no reason. They, they, they can't weasel out of it. And that's what we're seeing in our text. So that's the buildup. And then and then the, the, the teardown, if you will, the ramp down from that is where we are. Does everybody have notes, by the way? Um, it's titled Unbelief on Trial, right? So this is John 11, 45 through 57. All right, and so, um, and, I, and we, we talked also, remember, uh, about the chief priests, right? Because they're starting to come more and more into prominence. Uh, in the Gospels, you run into the Pharisees a lot, in all four Gospels. You do run into these guys, but they're, in the other Gospels, they're often, called, they are called chief priests in other Gospels too, but they're, they're often referred to as Sadducees, okay? But in your mind, uh, you should. You can kind of basically equate them. They're sort of basically the same group. I'm not to not to say that all the Sadducees were necessarily all chief priests and all chief priests were Sadducees, but the majority of them were enough to where where they're basically synonymous. Those two groups, okay. And they had very different jurisdictions. And while they tolerated the Pharisees, they also had very different theological views, uh, and they had juris different jurisdictions. The chief priests basically oversaw the temple area. Remember, there's only one temple, right? I was going over this again with Lori and, and helping her to sort it out. We, we t Because we live in the church age today, we think, oh, it's churches, you know, churches, our church, and we're talking about <clears throat> Calvary, Mills River, and, you know, and I pass uh, Oak Forest on the way here this morning praying for them, you know. And, okay, we're kind of all like, you know, brothers and sisters out there, you know, all serving the Lord and all that. That's not the way this worked, okay? You had one temple, the temple in Jerusalem, right? That was the place for all of the sacrificial system to work that God had commanded, right? And all the sacrifices were there, and you were required three times a year to go there for the major feasts. You know, we're about to hit Passover here in a few chapters, in the next starting next chapter. And... Uh, <clears throat> um, that was one of the biggies, right? And you were, everybody was required to come and, uh, uh, and appear by, by God's command. But then they had these synagogues as well. And these synagogues were kind of like our churches. In fact, our, our churches today are basically modeled after the synagogues. They did a lot of the same kind of things that we do. They read scripture. They had a, a message. They would sing there. They would just gather together. And so the churches... Um, you know, the church really was kind of born out of the synagogue system. And the synagogues would be spread around among the various cities, and you could have a city, you could have a synagogue in a city if there were uh, as few as 10 uh, heads of household there. Okay, so, so 10, you might say, tithing units, right? Or 10, 10 Jewish families in a city, they could start a synagogue. The Pharisees had domain, that was sort of their domain, the, the synagogues. That's why in chapter 9, they had the right to kick the blind man out of the synagogue, right? They had the, the right to, to exercise that nuke option, to, to shun him. Um, 
but these chief priests that we're looking at now had power over the temple area. That was their power. And that's important because as we're getting into our text here, now we see the Pharisees have heard about this. This is in verse 46, okay? Let's, let's go ahead and read our text as we're, we're coming in for a landing here. Uh, this is point number one, our outline. We've already been through this. The crowd's reaction to the raising of Lazarus. Uh, so this is John 11, 45 and 46. Uh, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what? Uh-oh. Believed in him. <laughs> notice, notice John, this is, this is interesting. Uh, you know, the, te the, the words in Scripture are, are very important, you know. Uh, it's not just, you know, ideas from Scripture. That's important, too. But the words themselves also are precise. And, and um, that's why you want to make sure you get a good translation. Um, nothing wrong with paraphrases necessarily, but um, for good, solid, deep study, uh, a good translation is important. Uh, in chapter 12, uh, look over at, at chapter 12, verse 9 for a minute. Notice, notice there what he says. He says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came on account of him. Okay? And some of the other translations don't even put of the Jews in there. They just put the multitudes. They'll, they'll say words like that. But here, um, John, John uses in verse 45, many of the Jews who have been there. So the wording that John is, he's very careful in this gospel to use the word Jews in a very specific way to, to refer to that collected mass of the, the top one percenters, you might say, of the nation. These were the people who were wealthy, who were many of them were very, very religious, you know, they were connected. Some of them were members of the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the the ruling council of the nation, the 70 plus the chief priest, right, the high priest. So that when John uses the term Jews here in verse 45, that's our clue that this is a very connected audience, right? They are very connected. They're very, uh, some of them likely, maybe even Nicodemus is there. That would be interesting. He doesn't say that, but... They were like Nicodemus in the sense that they were highly respected, very wealthy people who carried a lot of clout, right? So many of the Jews, therefore, uh-oh, and what are they doing? They're believing in him. Uh-oh. <laughs> now we got a problem. It's not just the backward blue-collar rednecks up in Galilee following this guy around, but now we've got some wealthy, well-connected people who are starting to believe in him. Right? You know, and by the way, that's, a, that's a, another place in Scripture that doesn't support this notion that Jesus was a communist and only looked out for the poor. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? And it doesn't matter what's in your earthly bank account. If you're lost and going, you're going to the same hell, whether you're, you know, as rich as Croesus or, you know, homeless on the street, right? <clears throat> People need the Lord. And regardless of their material um, position in this life. And so uh, these wealthy, well-connected people were there. Many of them are starting to believe in him. 
Verse 46, but many of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We've talked about that. So the Pharisees are the ones who hear about this. Notice that. Notice the next verse now. So this is point number two in our outline. This is where we were last time. This is where we pick up today. The Sanhedrin convenes a council to put Jesus on trial. <clears throat> verse 47 says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What shall we do? Or, sorry, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So the Pharisees hear about this, right, from this wealthy well-connected audience, and many of them are very excited. We're going to see this in chapter 12. This momentum continues on into chapter 12 and explains why there was so much excitement to welcome him in to Jerusalem at the what, what we call popularly the triumphal entry. We're calling a presentation of the King, uh, King Jesus. I like John MacArthur's title of that. But it's, it's so it's popularly known as triumphal entry. The other Gospels, when you read them, you're kind of like, where did this big crowd come from all of a sudden? They're very enthusiastic about it. Well, here you go. <laughs> this is what was happening. This wealthy, well-connected crowd of people is very excited about what they've seen. This is the size God of me, you know, and they're talking about him. They're creating this buzz. And, and, and now look who else is brought into it in verse 47. Chief priests and Pharisees. I meant, remember, I mentioned to you that both of these Groups um, is kind of like the is kind of like Democrats and Republicans. That's a good illustration uh, uh, that we can relate to today. You know, it's like them trying to work together toward a common goal. Uh, generally, usually they're kind of they both coexist and they rub up against each other. There's a lot of friction and pulling and, and blame shifting, and you know uh, they're they're awful and we're the best. Vote for me because he's terrible. America's going to go down the tubes if you put her in office. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of similar with these two groups. They had a lot of arguments, a lot of disagreements theologically. Um, they, they jostled each other for power and prestige, but here they're working together. And what's interesting about this, you might say, well, why didn't the Pharisees just take care of business themselves? If Jesus has, and as I said earlier, in the other Gospels and in John 2 as well, Jesus has been continuing to attack the Pharisees where they are in their power center, right? So he's going to synagogues a lot, right? And he's, he's attacking their, their traditions. And you have heard it said, but I say to you, right? What's he doing? He's contradicting what the Pharisees are teaching and, and, and what they're putting out in front of the people to, to follow. Questioning their authority. Questioning their authority and, and undermining their authority. So you might say, well, why don't they just do business? But they, they bring the chief priests in because, number one, the chief priests are also threatened. Again, you read the other Gospels. There are times when Jesus directly confronts the Sadducees and rebukes them for their false doctrine. And when he goes in, now listen, when he goes in at the beginning of this Gospel and at the end in the other Gospels uh, as well and cleanses the temple... That is also a direct attack against the power center of the Sadducees slash chief priests. Okay, So both groups are threatened by this man. And they're threatened by his rise in popularity. Now, not just, you know, some couple Samaritan wackos over in Samaria and blue collar. You understand, I'm trying to put ourselves in their perspective, right? Some rednecks up in Galilee, but... 
prominent people now starting to really sympathize with and follow Jesus openly. And there and the Pharisees had threatened that if anyone says they're a disciple of his, what's what's the consequence? Chapter nine, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even even the threat of that is not enough to quell this enthusiasm. They're starting to lose their grip on power. So they gather this council together. The chief priests are going to be important for later on, especially when it comes time to arrest Jesus. Because John is very clear. I've been, I've been studying this with the other Bible study and, and looking at it carefully and comparing all the gospel accounts. And um, John is very careful to tell us that it was a mixed company of, of soldiers that came. It was a large company of soldiers conservatively at least 200 that came to arrest him on the, you know, on the night in which he was betrayed, right? And, and uh, um, John is careful to say it was, it was called a Roman cohort. That's a special uh, military term. It could have been, uh, it's normally 600 men, but it could be as little as 200. Plus the temple guard. And the chief priests were the ones who ran the temple guard. They were their own security force for the temple area, right? So the Romans had their security force in town, and the chief priests were the guys who gave the orders for the temple guard. And that combined group was the one to go arresting. Okay. So the, so again, pay attention to the details here because the the, the pieces are being put in place for the events that, that we know are coming later. Okay. <laughs> So the chief priests and, and Pharisees gathered, and in this Bible, this is ESV here, it has the council, the word council at a capital C, right? And I think that's correct. This is the Sanhedrin. This is an emergency council, and maybe not everybody, okay? But majority of them, just like, you know, we do today, the uh, Senate or Congress will, will often convene, right? Not everybody has to necessarily be there uh, in order for them to, to vote on things. Um, and, and so, uh, but this, this is a council, and they call it emergency council. <clears throat> They're working at these two groups that normally are sort of jostling for attention and power are now working together against the Lord. It says, what shall we do? What are we to do if this man performs many signs? They can't deny it anymore. Right? It's not back to chapter 9 where, well, maybe this really didn't happen. No, this, this happened. And not only, notice they don't, they don't say, what shall we do for this man raised Lazarus? What do they say? Many signs. That just, the, the raised Lazarus just put the virus in the day before. I mean, they it's think like they the final had, nail. Yep. I may be wrong, but I think it, they, they always had a, for all these other miracles, they, they had some of the kind of something. That's because of that. But they could definitely not deny this. That's right. His death for three days and it even said in it that he stunk. You know, you cannot deny the stench of death. That's right. So I think this was just like, okay, we can't cover this up. We can't make any excuses. We can't, you know, like Jairus and daughter, you know, they said she was asleep or she could have just passed out. But we know different that, that Jesus definitely raised her. They, they tried to say that. But in this situation, there was no denying. No denying. And John has offered us seven miracles, right? 
public miracles, and that's on the first page of your notes. I put a little table together to summarize it and remind us what those seven are. But John's also going to tell us at the end of his gospel, and we, and, you know, we're studying Mark right now, and we know from the other gospels there are lots of other miracles that are recorded. And John, at the end of, of chapter twenty, is going to say. Uh, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which aren't recorded here, right? Uh, and in fact, he even speculates uh, to say, you know, there's so many of them, I don't think we could even write it down. <laughs> in all the books of the world could hold it. You know, he did so much, there's just no way I can write it all, <clears throat> write it all down. But what I have written is written so that you may believe, right? And uh, and so here's the thing: even now, watch this: even his enemies who reluctantly, not, reluctantly is not even strong enough for it, they, through clenched teeth, have to admit he does many signs. <laughs> they can't deny it. We've seen them try to deny it in the past, right? They try to ignore it, try to deny it, try to push it aside. They can't do that. It's in your face. This, this raising of Lazarus is like, like you said, Rick, is sort of the, the final nail in the coffin. And notice, what are we to do? Now, this council, again, John is John is giving us a very condensed form. I guarantee you there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of debate, maybe a lot of witnesses that came up and, and they said, oh, and he did this over there and he did this over there. This John is distilling all of that down to, you know, something you can read inside two seconds. They didn't convene it. A large council like this to meet for five minutes, right? It was there for a while, but this is the sum and substance of it. And and what he means by that, what are we to do, is 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 portray this mood in the crowd. Now watch this. Think about it. We tend to think of his enemies here in the, in this in this um, council as all thinking the same way. They like with one person, they all hate him and they all say, we got to crucify this guy. That's not what's happening here. They are divided about it. What are we going to do? You know, he's doing these signs and there's this back and forth. And I guarantee you, I think what John is doing here, we see the, we catch little whiffs of this. We're going to see it again in chapter 12, where, where, even even among the elite, even among that group called the Jews, which by and large, as a as a block, as a group, you might say, opposed Jesus, even in that group, there were individuals who weren't completely on board with it, who actually were kind of sympathetic, you might say, or even beginning to believe in Jesus. And Nicodemus is one of those. And we're going to meet another one at the end of near the end of the gospel, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, right? He's another one who is well-connected um, and, and is a, becomes a believer. So John here is careful to let us know that this council isn't just all of one mind, everybody in the room hates Jesus, and that there's this... Nicodemus has already said in chapter 3, we, we, meaning all of them, know you are from God. No one can do these miracles, these signs, why I call them signs, right? No one can do these things unless God is with him. So if you claim to be the chief ruling body 
in a nation that is essentially theocratic, more or less, at least likes to pride itself in being the people of God. And this one person comes and performs so many miracles, you can't write them all down, and then does this as a capstone, put the cherry on the icing, so to speak, or on the, on the Sunday with raising Lazarus, and hands that over to you and said, it's almost slams back, and now what are you going to do about it? You know, uh, you can understand why there would be this tension in the room. On the one hand, they don't like him. He's a threat to their power center. On the other hand, he's clearly from God. Okay? And that and John does a good job of, of helping us feel that tension here. Look at verse 48 then. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Whose nation? <laughs> oh. Huh. What if God wants to interrupt your plans? They don't want that. We don't want that. What if he's not pleased with this religious system that you are cranking out in his name and, and filling your pockets with the money of people who are coming out of sincerity to worship God in the temple? That's why Jesus got so angry with them. You have turned my father's house into what? A den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. Everybody, even the outer, the very outer court, the Gentiles even could come. Right? But they had turned it into the bazaars of Annas. And it was an outdoor mall, basically. And they were ripping people off left and right. You know, we read about that. It was almost a, it really, not almost, it really was a criminal, an organized criminal enterprise. In the name of God. Yeah, that's what was happening. It's not, this is, everything I've read is pointed to that, you know. Um, I'm not exaggerating. And so uh, they are concerned about this. He's going to come and take away both our place and our nation. If they, are, if they are truly cooperating with God, shouldn't they welcome him? Yes, they would. Yeah. Yeah. Let's open the doors, throw the carpet out, let's set up a throne, and let's bow down and worship him. That's the right attitude. But they don't want to do that. Notice who they say will, will be the threat. They don't say God is the threat. They say Rome is the threat. And the irony when I read this, it's a, I don't smile, it's not funny because it's so sad. What actually did happen not too many decades from now, when they're meeting, the Romans come and do exactly that. They come and take away both their place and their nation. They destroy the temple. Jesus predicted that, right? You see all these stones, and not one will be left. Well, they really bring it upon themselves to explode. They, right. they were continually opposing everything just all the time. That's right. But we can see where they're, where they're real. You know, um, This can happen still today. Now we don't, we don't, you know, maybe it's God's grace that we don't have a huge, you know, mega church ministry and, and you know, lots of, lots of millions of dollars coming in, and a big building and droves of people 
Um, when you have that kind of power and pull and prestige and, and, you, and you become sort of the center of gravity in, in the local community, um, there's a comfort, there's a peace, there's a, there's a, a, a safety and, and, and a, a, um, a place of, of um, strength maybe that you might feel from that, right? Proverbs says that the rich imagines his wealth to be a fortress, okay? We sing that song, the Lord is a strong tower, but righteous from to and are saved. That's the next verse. The verse before that says that the wealthy imagine is his wealth to be a strong tower. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower, right? So what it's saying is in the, in the mind of wealthy and powerful people like this, your place of prestige, your place of, 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 of wealth and, and prosperity and power and respect from people and you know they like to have they like to have the greeting in the marketplace and everybody's ooh there's Rabbi David ooh you know can I have your autograph the little kids come up and they're all starry eyed you know and everything and we that feeds our pride right and and next thing you know you're you're taking comfort in that as opposed to looking at God as a strong tower right. Paul says that uh, that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And it's, it's a good reminder to us, you know, I, I have a lot of pride that the Lord needs to help. And he's constantly reminding me about that, you know. And um, <clears throat> as you do, we, we do not. Yes, yes. He says pridefully. Lord, thank you for showing him his fault. <laughs> Pride is power repellent. Pride is power repellent. When you take comfort and solace in your abilities, in, in, the, in the wealth that you think you have, or the prestige that people have, or the, the accolades that they give you, you take, you take comfort in that, you hide yourself in that, you have taken your eyes off of what really matters. And, and, and God... The one who gave it to you can take it away just as easily. Yeah, sure, yeah. So it's it's a good reminder for us this morning, I think, in humility, right? So it's not their place, it's not their nation, right? Their positions of authority in the nation, Jesus rebuked them for this back in chapter 10, right? He when he says, I am the good shepherd, why the extra good? Because I'm contrast, he's contrasting with the bad shepherds, these people right here. These are the bad shepherds that he's talking about. Ezekiel 34, same, same thing, right? That God blasts them. Ezekiel 34 is strong. Man, it's so strong. You know, and they and they were a threat to the flock. They were a threat to the people of God. They were supposed to be the ones protecting the people of God, and they were the biggest threat to the people of God. And God did not like that. And he allowed their greatest fear to come upon them. The Romans did come and take away their place and their nations. All right, verse 49 is where we were last time. Sorry about all the big run up there. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. All right. Remember Caiaphas. We've talked about him. We're going to see him again coming up in um, Leviticus chapter 18, where he shows up again um, at the at the quote-unquote trial of Jesus, trials, plural, hearings, you might say, um, although it's really even hard for me to say those words because that's not what it was. 
But um, Caiaphas, notice what John says about him. He's his high priest that year. Remember we talked about this. Originally the high priest was supposed to be in office for life, right? And then when the high priest died, then, you know, uh, those who were in the cities of refuge, for example, could, could go free, that type of thing, right? So so the law is clear that it's that it's not really uh, a political office, but, but, that, but by this point it had been. And, I, and as I read to you in the notes, um, Annas, who had this office before for several years, was so bad that he was removed by the Romans and was replaced with Caiaphas. But, but Annas still had his had control of that office because Caiaphas was his son-in-law. And, uh, and so John, John just kind of hints at that when he says he was high priest that year. It just... It, 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 can you hear the transiency in that? It's like, okay, this year it's this guy. Next year it's this guy. Hey, in four months it'll be the next guy. After Caiaphas leaves, by the way, uh, <clears throat> and I think both he and Pilate, uh, shortly after Jesus was crucified and ascended, um, uh, both of them were, were removed, which is interesting. And uh, rather quickly, and they were replaced with other people. And, and after this, from what I understand, there was you know a short succession of many high priests up to the time of the destruction of the temple. Boom, 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 boom. They're all falling like dominoes. You know, there's no there's no sense of stability. There's no sense of of, of, of strong, you know, godly leadership there that's there for the duration. None of that. It's, it's all leaves blowing in, in the political wind. Your house is left desolate. Yeah, your house left desolate. Yeah. History bears that out. Uh, anyway, so Caiaphas. Now who remember this is the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas is the 71st member, right? So Sanhedrin is a, a group of 70 elders, you know, uh, to make decisions for the nation. The 71st, if you will, the president of this body, this Congress or this Senate is what we would call it today. Um, the president of that is the high priest. And so Caiaphas, when he stands up, he's kind of like, you know, you've seen on, on, on C-SPAN, you've seen, uh, the Senate when they meet, right? And, and you've got the floor and you got all these little desks, but then you have this podium, right? And the, the stage, and it kind of goes up and steps like this. And then at the very top is this one podium, you know, where the guy or the gal, whoever it is, has the leader of the Senate, you know, has the gavel. And if the vice president is there to break a, a tie, that's even you know, greater. And that person takes the, takes the chief seat and has the gavel. Here's what we're going to do, right? And they call everybody to order. And that's what Caiaphas is doing here. He's in that in that pinnacle place. And when he steps up to speak, everybody stops. All of the whispering, all of the dissension, the tension that's in the room, that people have been back and forth about what should we do about Jesus and what are the consequences. And he does all these signs, but we're going to lose our power here. And, you know, he steps up. And what does he say to them? First thing he says, Taylor 49. You know nothing at all. <laughs> when you read that in English, uh, that's not the top of your list of how to influence people, win friends, and influence people, right? <clears throat> if you're gonna if you're gonna sway a crowd of people who are divided, and you want them to see your opinion, you don't tend to lead with an insult, right? You guys are stupid. That's the way it sounds like. Well, it's ended with an exclamation point, so you know it was appropriately said. 
Exclamation point is put there by the translators, right? But it is an abrupt statement, okay? But let me see if I can help you remember, help you understand. I looked it up. Whenever we have something like that, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's always really good to ask questions of the text because it's a really great way to study the Bible. You see something like that, and you're like, well, I stub your toe on it instead of saying, oh, well, that hurt, and move on. Stop and go, go back and say, wait, what's going on here? Do a little digging because there's a reward there. Okay, and and that's what I did here. And here's an alternate rendering. That word there that you basically know nothing can also relate to memory. Okay, so here's an alternate rendering of what he says to them. You all remember nothing. You have such short memories. Okay. So I don't think what he's doing here is necessarily starting with an insult to their intelligence. What he's saying instead is, you guys have forgotten some things. Let me remind you some things, okay? What he's trying to do, what it is, is basically a rally, rallying call to say, look, everybody listen to what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna remind you of why we're here and what's happening, okay? What's really at stake? You've, in other words, you've left the central issue and you're running down rabbit trails and you're chasing all this other stuff. Let me bring you back to why we're really here, the core issue, okay? Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What is his main argument here? Structure, I guess. It's not really the nation he's worried about. He's worried about the political, stru political structure. Well, he uses the he mentions the nation, right? It's, it's good for the, that the nation that one yeah, man should die rather than the whole nation perish. You think he's insincere? For the guy who who really is kind of the hinge, we're going to see this again when we get to chapter 18. He becomes the, the point of the spear uh, in the effort to crucify Jesus. But it's kind of an odd thing for him to say. Here, you would expect him maybe to say, you know, that that uh, yeah, you guys are right. The Romans are going to come and take our place in our nation. Um, but he and he does in a way, but he says it. He says it in a strange way. This is priestly substitutionary language. That's why John. Look at the next verse. That's why John, in his commentary, says this in verse fifty-one. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Let's keep going to 52. Not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Oh. <laughs> Whose nation is this again? God the Father is making sure that his son is honored and glorified even in even from the mouth of this number enemy number one, so to speak, of Jesus. Very interesting. And he is high priest, so he is filling this God-ordained office, even though the man himself in the role is corrupt. Remember when we looked at <clears throat> the study of authority, where it comes from and how, how it's exercised, God always dispenses authority, no exceptions. Always dispenses authority through roles. Even in the Godhead, it's done that way. And remember, there's a distinction between power and authority. Having a gun going into a bank gives you power. It doesn't give you authority to take money out. Right? And so here, this man, and, and so listen, too. You know, as, as you may not like whoever is in the role or office of president, for example, but there is a respect due to that office that we show not because we like the individual, but because of the God who established that office and put that person there, right? So we show honor to the Lord by showing honor to <clears throat> that individual. Same with the police officers or anybody else, right? You, you know, you can't excuse disrespect for authority based on whatever your personal preference. I don't like that person or you know, that whole institution is 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 inherently racist or whatever. That's, those are those are unbiblical, unchristlike attitudes because everybody is there by God's appointment and the authority they exercise in that role comes from God. And that's the case here. This man is in a as corrupt as he is, is in a position of authority that is God-given, and in that, he unwittingly uses high, or priestly substitutionary language to say that Jesus will die for the nation. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And, and John goes on to say not only for that nation, but what? All the people of God scattered everywhere. Now, some of the commentators say, well, that's referring to the Jews who are scattered around the, the dysphoria, and it can be, but I don't think that God is necessarily limiting that to the Jews either. It's pretty clear that he intends the Gentiles. And we'll see that again in, in uh, uh, it's chapter 18, where, no, chapter 12, where some of the, some of the uh, Greeks who are proselytes, who, who have converted to Judaism, say, we want to see Jesus. Right? Even as the nation is turning their back on Jesus, here come the Gentiles asking to see him. So, so, yes. Even this corrupt high priest is being used by God in his sovereign plan. And wouldn't we expect that from God? Yes, yes we would. <laughs> we sure would. Maybe not like it, but we... <laughs> I'm glad he's in George. I am too. We, um, you think we see that today as well? Yes, we do. With what we, we as believers see what's going on in our country it's made us 
framework of our country. Yes, it is. And it's made us know that he's he's in charge. Um, I know that I I get bitter about things about things that's way out of my control. But I just have to keep reminding myself, and it's it's a I say daily, you know, it's a minute by minute thing. I have to remind myself that I'm not in charge. He's in charge. He's the one driving. I'm just sitting back. And, I don't mean that disrespectful at all, but I'm just, it's, it's amazing sometimes what we try to do ourselves. But I think we see that today because our country is in such a turmoil. But <clears throat> in reality, he's done it for a reason. And I think one of his reasons is to bring his people back together and make us, make us depend on him and, and rely on him. And maybe he totally loves the scheme, but. Well, he's promised to do it too. Yeah. Romans 1. You want to understand what's happening in our country? Read Romans one. I'll tell you everything. It's all spelled out right there. God's given them, given us over, giving many of our people over. They, they've had the witness of creation. They have the witness of scripture. Even. <clears throat> and they're turning backs on it, and so they're losing their minds. They're replacing um, wholesome friendships with hollow sexual encounters. It's all over the place. And then, and then chapter one collapses in this big heap of avalanche of crime. You know, people killing each other and divorce and, and uh, lies everywhere. This is the judgment of God. But in the midst of that, there is mercy. Amen. And that's what we pray for. You know, like Daniel. You know, Daniel, God judged the nation Israel many times and finally sent them into captivity. Really harsh, really harsh. And Daniel, in the midst of all that, is praying for the nation. He says, you know, he's begging for mercy for himself and for his people. And he says, I don't make this request because we're righteous, but because of, because you're merciful. You know, we don't we don't deserve it, but we're asking for it anyway because you're a merciful God. Father, to that end, we we pray because we see just like we see the corruption here. In the leadership of the nation Israel at this time, when your son was walking the earth, um, so we see the same thing even today in our own. And 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 really, human history is a record of that. It's it's many nations that have started well, many institutions, many corporations, many churches, many ministries that have started well, and they've had good leadership that they look to and aspire to that sort of embody the aspirations of that organization, whether it's a nation or a church or a corporation or whatever, but we see the decline time and time and time again on a small scale and a large scale and it grieves our hearts to see that in our nation as well today. It grieves our hearts also to see it in many churches as we said at the, at the top as well. Because um, <clears throat> of all the people who should be walking in righteousness, it should be those of us who hang a shingle on the, on the road outside and say we represent Christ. And yet we ourselves are very subject to this kind of corruption. And, and as Rick said, our pride gets in the way and we become self-reliant. And, uh, and Father, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the fact is, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. We understand 
that it ultimately exaltation doesn't come from the east or the north or the south. It comes from you. You, you raise up one and tear down another. Uh, and that was the lesson that you taught to Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel as well, too. And, and, <coughs> so help us in humility to remember who we are and whose we are. Remember you're in charge and humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you may lift us up in due time in your way, in your purposes. And, uh, and so pray for your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name. Thank you.